We have um, Saturday, June 5th, the CMS conference. The theme is Follow Me from Matthew 4.19, and it will be 9 to 11 virtually. Um, and uh, Dan and Lindsay Ball will report from Kazakhstan. And then from 2 to 4 p.m., it'll be an in-person meeting at Grace Bible Chapel in San Jose uh, with Dave Harvey and Eric Weger reporting. Dave Harvey in the Philippines and Eric Weger outbound to uh, Azerbaijan. If you don't know where that is, come to the conference and, and see. Do we have a women's Bible study uh, the second Wednesday of, um, of the month? Okay. Uh, more to follow on that. Birthdays. Um, Joanne Chafee has a birthday on Tuesday. Happy birthday, Joanne. And uh, uh, with that, Noed, we'll turn it over to you. Thank you for ministering this morning. Good morning. Let me try that again. Good morning. Good morning. Be a nice day when uh, we're not wearing these masks anymore. But uh, we're thankful for, for the Lord, for all he gives. Uh, today we're thankful for his word, an opportunity to study uh, an event uh, often referred to as a triumphal entry. But uh, first, by way uh, of illustration, um, I had uh, lunch with uh, an old coworker of mine maybe uh, a month ago. And before that, it's probably been a couple of years since I've seen him last. And uh, we talked a little bit about how things were going in his family and my family. And one of the things uh, that caught my attention is he, he uh, was impressed by how well uh, my girls were doing spiritually. And uh, it took me a, a few seconds to connect with the fact that the reason he said that was that I posted on Facebook uh, them reciting verses in front of church. And, and that was the image in his mind. When he was thinking of me, he was thinking of my girls reciting, you know, one chapter of the scripture, which, which is a wonderful thing. And, and the reason I post that is I'm so proud of them, right? They, they stand up here, they do a great job reciting verses. And I think that's something worthwhile sharing with others. And... Uh, I think that's often, we, don't, we may not always think about it when we're posting things on Facebook, but um, it's a way of projecting to the world how uh, we want them to be thinking about us or things that are important to us. And, um, and in a sense, that's what we're looking at today. As we're thinking about the triumphal entry, we will see Jesus choosing to project himself in a particular way during uh, this very famous event, and we want to think about that. What is it that Jesus was communicating uh, about, about himself to us, uh, the people of his day as well? So with that, let's go ahead and read Matthew chapter 21, and starting at the beginning and going all the way to verse 11. Matthew 21, starting in verse 1. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, 
Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees, spread them on the road. Then the multitude who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. As uh, most of you know, I work uh, for uh, an LED manufacturer. So my company makes LEDs. The the LED stands for Light Emitting Diode. And that's kind of what the new illumination is based on. I think not this room. This room was built just before the LEDs kind of took over. But uh, I think like outdoors, uh, the uh, light fixtures, we have have LEDs in them. Uh, If you have a phone, which I assume probably all of you do, uh, you have LEDs in that phone. Uh, If you happen to have an iPhone, uh, some of the LEDs in that phone were probably made by my company, not the company that belongs to me, the company I work for. And uh, we spend... uh, a lot of money on developing new LEDs. Every year we have to develop new LEDs uh, if we want to stay in business because that's just the way the market works. Uh, price of, of things keeps going down. So you have to come up with something new, the latest and greatest if you st- still want to make money. And so we will spend uh, millions of dollars every year developing new LEDs. And when we do, uh, there's a schedule. There has to be a plan of getting this new LED to market. Uh, and knowing, making sure we're going to get our return on investment. And during the development process, we have something called milestones, which is basically we, you know, by a certain date, we need to achieve certain milestones in the development of the LED. Uh, We have to make uh, perhaps a prototype, and then we have to uh, get it, uh, prove it's reliable enough, and then prove it's it's, uh, manufacturable enough uh, and then release it to the market by a certain date. And, uh, and all, all of that happened, has to happen in a, in, a, in a timely manner in order for this to be successful. Uh, God, in his plan of salvation, also had milestones. He had a plan of bringing about our salvation. And the event we look at today is so significant, it's clearly one of the milestones, one of the plans of God uh, for salvation. And we can actually find it uh, recorded in Daniel chapter 9. This is uh, often referred to as the 70 weeks uh, prophecy. 
because uh, the first verse in the passage, uh, this is Daniel 9, 24, says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So it's clearly one of these grand prophecies supposed to capture really all of God's plan uh, of salvation, especially from that time until the Messiah actually comes. And then, uh, the, this is an angel speaking to the prophet Daniel. He gives him a particular timeline. He says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince... So there's a starting point. The starting point is a command to restore and build Jerusalem. So at that time, Jerusalem was in ruins. It was just destroyed by the Babylonians. But a command was going to go out to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. That's the starting point. The ending point is Messiah the Prince. Messiah was going to come to Israel as a prince or a king, we would say. And the period of time, it says there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So you'd add that, that's 69 weeks. Remember, there was 70 weeks, but there's a week to remain after that. But between the command going out to restore and build Jerusalem and Messiah arriving to Israel as their prince, there was going to be these 69 weeks. The street shall be, shall be built again. <coughs> and the wall, even in troublesome time. And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Amazing prophecy because it actually predicts the death of the Messiah. Not many prophecies in the Old Testament uh, went into that particular aspect of the Messiah. This one clearly did. And if you find a time in history where the command went out, the end of the 69 weeks, and again, these are 69 weeks of prophetic years, literally is fulfilled on the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem sitting on a colt or the fall of a donkey. So this event we're looking at today is one of the big milestones in God's plan of salvation. It's God presenting Israel with the Messiah he had long promised them would come. Very, very significant milestone. Why was it so important? Why did Jesus need <coughs> to enter Jerusalem on this particular day in such a significant manner as the Messiah? And the answer to that, um, I, I could borrow from what Jews for Jesus uh, states as the, the mission purpose, the mission as an organization. Jews for Jesus is one of many missionary organizations. And at some point, as I was working with them, I asked them, well, why do we need Jews for Jesus? Right? We have so many <coughs> missionary organizations already, and we have uh, so many believers in this country. And they said, well, the problem is twofold. First of all, Christians often will not reach out to Jews because they'll look at them as God's promised people. They're already in somehow, right? They're, they're God's promised people or God's special people. Uh, so they must be somehow okay. They're not my responsibility. Or maybe they're just too difficult. You know, they, they're just not open to the gospel. 
And, uh, and the other problem is most Jews view Jesus as a religious teacher who has come and brought some, you know, new teachings about God. And uh, the Jews didn't really like those teachings. Uh, the Gentiles did, and that's fine. You know, the Gentiles can believe in Jesus. There's nothing wrong with that. But, <clears throat> you know what, the message he came to bring wasn't for us Jews. Right? I mean, that's what most Jews will think. That's how I grew up. I grew up learning that about Jesus. A religious teacher a long time ago had some new things to say about God, and, you know, the Gentiles liked what he had to say, and so that's a good thing, right? You know, probably brings them a little bit closer to God. What I did not know growing up was that Jesus claimed to be Israel's Messiah. And uh, Jesus did this to make this, what Jews for Jews will say, their, their purpose of existence, their mission statement is to make the Messiahship of Jesus an unavoidable issue for the Jewish people, or maybe an inescapable issue for the Jewish people. They want to make sure that the Jews know that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. And that's what Jesus was doing at this triumphal entry. <coughs> I get perhaps a, perhaps a good verse about that. In Luke 19, it's a parallel passage. It says, then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And here's the section that's not in our passage today, but that was part of the same event. Verse 39, and some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, <coughs> Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. So the religious leaders were willing to recognize Jesus as another teacher. They call him teacher themselves. Yeah, we understand. You're a religious teacher yourself. You have your teachings. But... Listen to what your disciples are saying. They're calling you the king. They're calling you Messiah. Right? Rebuke them. Tell them that they're wrong in making such a statement or profession about you. And Jesus says, if these should keep quiet, the stones themselves are going to cry out. That's what this day, that's what this event is all about. It's because I am the Messiah. Jesus was making his Messiahship an inescapable fact for the Jewish people during this day. Now, he, he was claimed to be the Messiah before. John the Baptist said that this was the Messiah. The angel said this was the Messiah. Jesus has professed on multiple occasions he was the Messiah. His works, his miracles proved that he was the Messiah. But on this day, he made it an inescapable declaration. The Jews could never say, the religious leaders can never say, that Jesus did not claim to be the Messiah after this day. And that's why it was such an important event. <clears throat> okay, picture of the event. What is it that Jesus wanted to post on his Facebook page to mark this event? Uh, Nessia, would you please get me a bottle of water? Thank you. <clears throat> 
So we have this description for us, right? He says to his disciples to go into the village to find a donkey tied in a colt with her. He had them loose them to bring them to Jesus to ride on. So the picture that Jesus provides uh, for us is him riding into Jerusalem, sitting on a donkey. Now, uh, when I was uh, a youth, perhaps Nessia's age or, or younger, thank you, Nessia, uh, I thought cars were pretty cool. And I thought car, cool cars were even cooler than your average car, right? So in Israel, there wasn't as wide of a selection of cars as you have here. Probably the car considered to be the best would be like a BMW or maybe a Porsche. And we would hear about things like Ferraris and Lamborghinis. And uh, we associated people who had such cool cars with, uh, you know, wealth, power. Uh, these are cool people because they have cool cars. And um, in Jesus' day, people typically walked. If you had an animal to ride, it would typically put you above the common people, right? The common people probably did not have an animal to ride. Maybe they would have an animal to help them with the farm work, right? But they would typically walk. They wouldn't depend on animals for transportation. Not so if you were uh, like a nobleman or especially the king, right? You wouldn't expect to have to walk to places. You would have your chariot drawn with horses, uh, or maybe you'd be riding on a horse. Some places people were riding on elephants, right? Or, or camels, right? So there were different riding animals. Uh, the smallest of these was a donkey, right? The donkey would be the smallest riding animal. Now Jesus didn't pick a donkey. He picked a donkey's colt or a foal, a young donkey. In fact, I think in Luke or Mark it says that it was uh, such a young donkey that no one has yet ridden the donkey. So now we're talking about, you know, a small donkey that Jesus was riding in. Why does Jesus want that on his Facebook page? Why, of all things, as he's riding into Jerusalem, announcing himself to be the Messiah, King of kings and Lord of lords, he would choose the smallest possible rideable creature to go into Jerusalem in. And the answer is captured in the prophecy. It says, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Uh, Jesus was showing that he was lowly. What does it mean to be lowly. To be lowly means to always be seeking the lowest case. I had an opportunity to get a ride in, uh, I think it was with, uh, with Bill and, uh, and Uncle Matt over here. I hope it's okay. Matt, I call you Uncle Matt. But uh, it uh, was always interesting to, to go with the two of them because they would always both fight for the back seat in the car. I mean, typically, when I go with my kids, you know, they're fighting over who gets to ride shotgun, 
who gets to be in the front? But uh, with Matt, Matt and, uh, and Bill, it was always the other. They were fighting for the back seat. Why? They were putting the other person higher than them. The Lord Jesus uh, was putting us ahead of himself. He says this in, uh, as he was talking to his disciples, right? Remember, this is just a couple of weeks ago. Michael was teaching about the passage. And John and James were trying to push themselves to the front, right? And say, okay, <coughs> Lord, we want one of us on your left and one on the right. <coughs> we want the best seat in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus speaks to them about it and explains it actually wasn't his place to give those special seats in the kingdom of heaven. And the fact is they didn't really know what they were asking for. Uh, but then the other disciples get upset with, <coughs> with James and John, and then he, he called them to himself and he explains to them, look, you have the completely wrong idea about the kingdom of God. And uh, he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them, right? We, we think that to be the best, to be the greatest, means that I'm looking down at other people. I'm ruling at other people. I'm telling other people what to do. That's this world's idea of, of kingdoms and rulerships. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires <coughs> to become great among you, let him be your servant. <coughs> that is the great place in the kingdom of God, is being a servant. It's actually serving other people. That is God's idea of greatness. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. It's okay. There's plenty of room for people to be great in God's kingdom because it's not the top ruling over others that makes you great. It's being at the bottom and serving others that make you great. There's never, we never run out of room for servants. Uh, and then he says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That was Jesus' attitude. He came to serve others. That's the whole reason he was here on earth. The whole reason he was entering Jerusalem was to offer himself as their sacrifice. It was to serve them, to put them ahead of himself. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. It was the mind of serving others. And um, that is why Jesus was riding on a donkey. And that is what he once posted on his Facebook page, because it shows the kind of king that he is. He is a king that serves others, the king who puts himself underneath us to serve us, to give us eternal life, right? That was his whole purpose as a king, and that's why he was riding on a donkey's colt. Now, it's something that I was challenged this week, as, and, and that's the wonderful thing about preaching, is you have to prepare. And when you prepare, God can use the verses, really, on yourself. And I was convicted about myself, uh, and actually, uh, I mean, often we, we try to, to keep this attitude of serving others to certain spheres of our lives. Okay, well, I'll go to church, and there I'll serve others. Well, that just describes one hour of the week. Right? What about the other, you know, 100 and who knows how many hours there are during the week? It's really, it's the people you interact with most 
during the week that are probably the people you need to be watching out most to be practicing this principle of, of serving others. There's this um, poem uh, that, that I like, <clears throat> and I've shared it before. It says, Lord, help me to live from day to day in such a self-forgetful way that even when I kneel to pray, my prayers shall be for others. Others, Lord, yes, others, let this my motto be. Help me to live for others that I may live like thee. Help me in all the work I do to ever be sincere and true and know that all I do for you must needs be done for others. Let self be crucified and slain and buried deep and all in vain. May efforts be to rise again unless to live for others. And it's this last verse that... Um, that kind of catches me as I was thinking about this topic. Let self be crucified and slain. What is self? Well, self is my desire to promote myself, to do things that please me, right? It's my, if you would, selfishness. Let it be crucified and slain and buried deep and all in vain may efforts be to rise again unless to live for others. There's a continual battle. Myself keeps wanting to rise to the top again. You know, I can maybe have victory one moment and I have a particular person and I, I'll put myself second and I'll give them the first place, meaning I'll, I'll do what's good for them instead of what might potentially please me. But, you know, an hour later, myself will rise again. And once again, I will put myself ahead of others, right? It, it's a continual uh, battle. And, uh, and I was thinking just about how I treat my wife, you know, and she has, she has needs, she has concerns, and uh, how often do I put myself first, right, instead of, of, of stopping and considering her need in that particular situation and saying, you know what, I don't have to do this. You know, there's something she needs. And it's an opportunity for me to minister to her, to serve, to serve her. So a very practical daily living. Uh, you know, put a, a picture of Jesus riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. And let that be a re reminder of lowliness, right? Jesus wanted to be remembered as lowly. That's the picture he wanted as the king. He was the lowly king coming in to serve others. Okay. Uh, there's two tragedies in, in this passage. Uh, so, I mean, wonderful. You know, the people rejoice, and, and Jesus didn't ask for it. But as soon as Jesus showed that he was willing to be treated as Messiah, I mean, there was just this bursting forth of a desire to proclaiming all this pent-up uh, appreciation of the disciples, the multitude. Jesus has been healing them for years, teaching them, Many of them were ready to proclaim him as Messiah by force, you know, well before this event. But Jesus always suppressed that. He always walked away from it and said, this is not the time, right? He knew that that wasn't the reception he was going to receive at the end. But for this one day, this milestone in God's plan of salvation, he was going to present himself as Israel's Messiah, and he opens the tap, and he allows people to 
to bring out the praise that they had in, his, in their hearts for him, uh, penting up all this time with this wonderful display, laying their clothes. Perhaps Jesus was willing to ride on a donkey, but they were going to do everything they could to show him forth as the Messiah uh, that he really was and give him the praise for all the things he has done up to this point. So that's wonderful. But there are two tragedies here uh, at the end of the passage. The first one is in Jerusalem. Right? It says, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? What do you mean, who is this? <laughs> this is Jesus, right? I mean, and he's been proclaimed by John the Baptist three years earlier, and it says that everybody was coming to John the Baptist. So what John the Baptist did was no secret. Uh, Jesus has been going around uh, doing miracles and teaching, and people from all Israel have been coming, including Jerusalem. That's mentioned many times that people from Jerusalem went to where Jesus was, and, and they heard about him. And Jesus has come to Jerusalem probably three times a year for his whole life, right? Because that, those were the feasts ordained by God. And we have records of some of these occasions of Jesus coming to Jerusalem. And um, how is it that they don't know who this is, right? Uh, and yet, you know, in our, in our personal lives, we see examples where we try to testify to people about the Lord Jesus. We have dear ladies at our church with unbelieving husbands that they've, they've testified to over the years, both by word and by deed, just living with them, trying to, to be the best testimony they could, the, the godly, the submissive woman that, that God wants them to be. Uh, and yet, people don't know Jesus, right? They don't know uh, him for who uh, he is. And it's a tragedy because uh, Jesus says in John 8, and this was kind of, you know, him uh, against the, the religious leaders in Jerusalem. This was, uh, this was uh, at a previous, previous feast, perhaps a Passover a year earlier. Jesus came to Jerusalem, and he actually had to kind of hide himself as he was going because he knew that if he was going openly, uh, he, he might get uh, arrested and, and killed. Uh, before his time, but once he's there and he starts interacting with them, uh, he has to say this to them. This is John 8, 21. Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, you are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He was there as the Messiah. He was offering himself to them, and they were rejecting him. And in the rejection of him, they were denying themselves eternal life. It says that on this same passage, as Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, he wept over the city. You know, if you would have known this day, you know, what was happening, that your Messiah was walking through your gates, you know, it, you would have received your salvation, but instead, uh, not one stone is going to be left on the other. This whole city will be destroyed. We'll experience God's judgment. There is no salvation outside of Christ. And so this city that refuses to recognize Jesus 
for who he is, uh, was, was really condemning themselves to an eternity uh, without him. The second tragedy uh, is maybe a little bit less obvious, but it's in the answer of the multitudes. Uh, it says, so the multitude said, this is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Well, what's the tra tragedy there? Well, Jesus isn't just a prophet. I mean, it's true, he is a prophet. Praise God. He revealed God, but he's more than a prophet. And they themselves have just acknowledged him as the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. Right? He was more than just a prophet. Jesus asked his, uh, his disciples, who do men say that I am? And some men said that he was a prophet. Then he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. What is the rock that Jesus was building his church on? It was that declaration that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. If Jesus was just a prophet, he could tell us about God, but he couldn't save us from our sins. Only the Messiah, only the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world could actually deliver us as we were worshiping him this morning. He had to take us from the kingdom of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of the son of his love. There was a work that he had to do as the Messiah. And we have to believe in him as the Messiah, as the son of God, in order to enter into the benefit of that work. We can't just believe he is a prophet or a good man or any of the other things people believe about Jesus. If he is anything short of God, he could not have saved us from our sins. And so that must be uh, declared and declared plainly. And so here there seems to have been this opening, right? The city of Jerusalem is saying, who is this? Let's give him the truth, right? This is the Christ, the son of the living God. That, this is a prophet, right? And uh, I think of myself, how often in, uh, do I have uh, opportunities to speak of the Lord and I come short of a full declaration uh, of who he is. And, um, you know, how much I should be in prayer about being ready for opportunities. Ask the Lord for opportunities to share the gospel. We recognize people are not always open. You know, I've been with my uh, parents off and on for the last couple of days, and there haven't been particularly good opportunities to share. Now, they know what I've believed. I shared with them in the past, and occasionally I'll try to drop a, uh, a, you know, some bait, you know, opportunity maybe for discussion. But sometimes there are opportunities. The Lord opens the door and someone all of a sudden, you know, says something, asks something, and there's an opportunity to, to share with them something of the gospel. Uh, you know, how good it would be if we were prepared at such a time to take full advantage of that opportunity. Uh, as the multitudes failed in this particular opportunity.
Okay, uh, applications for ourselves, what can, we, what can we take away from this? Uh, the first one, let us see Jesus as he wants us to see him. Right? He is the king who rides into Jerusalem sitting on a, on a donkey's colt. Right? He is the servant king. Right? He is the lowly king. Uh, if we don't know the Lord, it's a, it's a great opportunity for us to know him as the one who came to serve us by saving us from our sins. Right? He is not just a, a, t- a religious teacher. Right? Uh, he is a savior. He came to save us from our sins. And uh, as believers, you know, what an example for us to, to, put our, to try to be lowly ourselves. Seek the lower place. Right? That is... That is the example of Christ. It is uh, Christ's direct declaration that it is the place of greatness uh, in his kingdom. And, uh, and probably, uh, really, the, the way of happiness, right? What, what's better than being a servant uh, in God's kingdom? Living out that life that he came to give us, a life of of putting others first, a life of being like him and, and enjoying his desire to reward us, right? This is a, the place of greatness. This is what God wants to reward, a life of, of servanthood. Uh, others, Lord, yes, others, let this my motto be. Help me to live for others that I may be like thee. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for our Lord Jesus, we acknowledge uh, that he is a great king and our king. And uh, we will do everything uh, to honor him as these multitudes uh, cried out, uh, spread their clothes uh, on the road. Uh, we want to honor him in every possible way. And we recognize one of the ways we honor him is by following his example and seeking that lower place. We ask that you help us do that. Uh, And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.